Cock and Bull podcast. It's the Cock and Bull, folks. No other. The only show. Except no substitutes. Guys, it's this guy's turn again. Spencer, have you ever heard of Gregor McGregor? Played Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Yep, 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 yep. Uh, There are times in my life where I get, like, viscerally mad that I didn't know a thing before I knew a thing. This Uh is one of those instances. So... Take a step back to 1786, Christmas Eve, 1786. Gregor McGregor is born to his ancestral home right. of Glengyle on the north shore of Loch Katrine in Stirlingshire, Scotland. Ooh. If you couldn't tell by the name. By all mm. the harsh syllables, if I couldn't tell. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He was born the son of Daniel McGregor, an East India Company sea captain, uh, also known as a, as a fucking colonial stooge. Pig. Pig, very much. The family was Roman Catholic because they, yeah, they were Scottish in the 1800s. Like, that's just a thing. They were. (laughs) Gregor's grandfather was also called Gregor McGregor, and he was nicknamed the Beautiful. Uh, And he served with distinction in the British Army. And this is not a Chekhov's gun. It will not recur. But the fact that his name was, that he was Scottish and he was named the Beautiful. Gregor the Beautiful. I love it. So there is very little record of uh, of little Gregor's childhood. Um, But after his father died in 1794, uh, he and his two sisters were raised primarily by his mother and other relatives, as you do. Uh, Sounds about right, yeah. (laughs) McGregor's biographer speculates that he probably would have spoke Gaelic in his early childhood and then learned English when he started school. Um, Mm -hmm. McGregor would claim later in life to have studied at the University of Edinburgh between 1802 and 1803, um, but as will become uh, a trend throughout this episode, records of this do not exist. Uh, I was going to say, there was some interesting verbiage there of claimed. Yeah, yeah. uh, Strap in. Because there's a there's a theme of brewing, guys. Um, but a thing that is absolutely not claimed and absolutely did happen is that in 1803, McGregor joined the British Army at 16, the youngest age possible for him to do so. Mm, and this is what year again? 1803. 1803. Now, uh, yeah, okay, par, par for the course, 16, going to war. It, it is. It's even more par for the course if you are someone that is really grounded in uh, European history around this time because... Uh, April of 1803 is a kind of auspicious time to be entering the British military because the Napoleonic War started. Um, the Literally, like, he joined the army and bah, Napoleonic Wars kick off. Um, oh. And, yeah, because the Treaty of Amends breaks down. Um, and, and he was sent to southern England because they were fortifying against what they expected was any minute now a tiny little angry Frenchman riding across the, the <laughs> channel to come invade them. <laughs> Norman style jokes jokes are fun he was of he was taller than average but he's shorter than me so fuck him yeah you're taller than everybody that's ever existed in time except Robert Wadlow these are all these are all factual statements you can't prove otherwise um while he may have been may arguably the second greatest general of all time he did not decide to cross the English channel uh probably because he was the second greatest general of all time um so in a smart move in 1804 February 1804 after less than a year of training McGregor was promoted without purchase to lieutenant. Um, now that that last part bears bears mentioning because he was absolutely bought in as an ensign. Um, his family paid 450 pounds for him to start as an ensign. Um, so it, it you know, I wasn't aware the English military was a mobile game where you can just you could pay to oh, play. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yes. The, the the in-app purchases for for I mean titles, all sorts of things. Um, you'll notice that again. Another trend of this man's uh, life. Also, if you look at a picture of him at this time, um, oh my God, he looks like such a stereotypically bad, pale British boy. Um, it's it's bad. It's very bad. Would you? So not not like a Gregor the Beautiful? No, definitely not Gregor the Beautiful. Definitely Gregor the stereotypically rosy-cheeked Scotsman. Most importantly here, Gregor is a member of the 1st Battalion of the 57th Foot Regiment. Um, that will become relevant later. That is a Chekhov's gun, guys. Come back to it. I've got a lot of cards in my back pocket that'll be relevant later in the match. It's gonna be it's it's gonna be a long one, guys. Just just bear with it. It was at this time that McGregor was introduced to Maria Bowater in 1804, and she was the daughter of a Royal Navy admiral. 
Uh, now, much like our good, good friend Dexter from our last episode, uh, Maria was quite a bit higher in station than Mr. Gregor. Um, she mm. commanded such a substantial dowry that she was absolutely being sought after by almost all the eligible bachelors because her now deceased father had left it to her. Uh, she was also related to two generals, a member of parliament, and famed botanist Almer Bork Lambert. Uh, that will not become relevant later. You can forget he ever existed. God, can we all just take a minute to to really pine for her situation uh, where you have a bunch of young British boys seeking after you and your fortune and your bosoms? It's very much like the song Two Princes by Spin Doctors, except the one guy that you're going to choose isn't wearing a weird Jinko jeans and a, a, a grunge sweater. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, Maria took to McGregor and they were married in St. Margaret's Church in Westminster in June of 1805. Uh, they set up home in London at the residence of the bride's aunt because she's rich. Uh, and two months later, after he rejoined the 57th foot from his, I don't know, he took a honeymoon break from guarding against Napoleon coming to town or something, um, McGregor bought the rank of captain for about 900 pounds. So again, he is absolutely pre-purchasing the new expansion pack. The way you're describing it is so much more literal than I thought it was. I thought you had to like, you know, you know, nudge some elbows, you know, say, fucking like sell your wife to some lieutenants. I didn't know you could just hand them a check and say, I'm captain, please. So here's the thing. McGregor bought the rank of captain for 900 pounds, choosing not to wait the seven years a promotion would take without purchase. He literally just skipped seven years by paying them a little less than a thousand pounds. Now, it's almost like these titles are in place to, you know, indicate some level of competency you gain from years on the job. Mm -hmm. Or that you're in the middle of a total war with Napoleon and please God give us money and for anything, you pretentious Scottish twat. So, we have rejoined the 57th foot uh, and they remained in Gibraltar, kind of waiting, waiting, waiting from 1805 to 1809. And during this time, McGregor developed an obsession with dress, rank insignia, and medals that made him kind of unpopular with the regiment. He's that guy that was wearing his ROTC mm. uh, 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 outfit to, to, uh, to school all the time and really letting you know that he was going to be, he was something special. Is it? Is it also because he bought all of the ranks like they were Pokemon cards on eBay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very much so. Very, very much so. Uh, <laughs> he, dur it made him unpopular with the regiment, and he forbade any enlisted man or non-commissioned officer to leave his quarters in anything less than full-dress uniform. And guys, we have not gotten to any of his detestable qualities yet. In 1809, the 57th foot was sent to Portugal to reinforce the Anglo-Portuguese army under the Duke of Wellington during the Peninsular War. Um, the, uh, you don't really need to know much about that other than he went to Portugal during the Peninsular War. Um, he didn't do anything there. In fact, he actually ended up retiring from British service formally on May 24th, <laughs> 1810, receiving back oh. <laughs> the 1,350 pounds he paid for his ranks. Shut the fuck up. He no, got he a refund on being in the military. I am a wary captain. I've, I should have sunk 30 years to get where I'm at, but ooh, it, is, it is my time. Money back, please. Very, very much. So at this point, he did nothing. Nothing. He bought his title. He bought his rank. He sat around waiting for Napoleon to invade, got sent to Portugal, did nothing, and then quit. This is important because we mentioned the 57th foot because if you are some weirdly Rain Man-esque uh, military historian of the Napoleonic Wars, <laughs> you may know that the 57th foot's actions in the Battle of Albuera on May 16th, 1811, almost a full year after McGregor left, literally got them the nickname the diehards they were like uh, the fucking seal team six of the napoleonic wars they were a very very famous brigade again for their actions a year after mcgregor left now mm -hmm. now knowing yeah. what we know about mcgregor he obviously doesn't use his association with this group to his benefit later on in life so you can just f probably forget about all that no, clearly, clearly he's not going to brag that he was part of this regiment which only became successful after he left. Yes, yes. He this, wouldn't do that. He is he's not a genuine man. He he is not a man that will write about these events and, and claim some sort of stolen valor, that bastard. Um 
It's fine. Steal all the value you want. Wear a, wear a Vietnam veteran's hat to, to Walmart as a millennial. It's cool. You're fine. Um, <laughs> at this point, a 23-year-old McGregor, again, 23. So you can imagine this 23-year-old by je- Captain Jet. Je- Hi, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm the boss now. <laughs> like, it, nobody would have taken him seriously at the time. He and his wife moved to a house rented by his mother in Edinburgh, and uh, he assumed the title of colonel. The, the, hang on. Questions? Now, last episode... <laughs> Previously, episode, on, previously on Gregor McGregor, this guy Lord Timothy Dexter uh, just kind of added Lord to his name because he made a lot of money and he just felt like it. What compelled him to uh, give himself an entire new rank? Exactly the same thing as Dexter, except forget the made of a lot of money. Just go with the he felt like it. Or just felt like he it. He felt like it. Okay. He felt like it. He also wore okay. the badge of a Portuguese knightly order and toured the city in an extra. It's toured the city in an extravagant colored coach. So he's just wearing a completely inappropriate patch. Just it has mm-hmm. nothing to do with what he's done. It is exactly the equivalent. That, number one, it is the equivalent of me again just walking into work with a Vietnam veteran's hat and a patch that said I got a purple heart in Korea. I just not that I don't recommend I, doing that, but uh, I'm just <laughs> saying it's a it's the equivalent. It's Nathan endorsed. It's Nathan. Endorsed. It is stamped with Nathan's seal of approval. Um, after failing to attain high social status in Edinburgh, McGregor moved back to London. In 1811, and started styling himself as Sir Gregor McGregor Bart, claiming to have succeeded the McGregor but, clan and, and and become the the chieftain of the McGregor clan back in Scotland. What was the Bart at the end of that? Bart at the end of that is a signatory. It's a it's like a title of the head of a fam, a head of a clan in Scotland, from what I understand. So it's a, again, he, he's Sir because he got knighted in Portugal. He didn't, and and Bart indicates that he was made the head of his clan in Scotland. He wasn't. <laughs> this guy's got girlfriends in countries you've never heard of. Oh yeah, his I, uncle works at Nintendo, and he has seen Super Mario sixty five. It's in, on its way. In what is. A scholarly work, this sentence is then uttered. This all had little bearing on reality. McGregor nevertheless created an air of credible respectability for himself in London. I just love that sauce being late. That 1700 sauce. Oh. If if anyone tries to convince you they're better than you because they're rich, kick them right in the balls. Just, just, or the lady balls, whatever. We're all equal oh, opportunity please here. please do. Please do, but know that they wouldn't be caught dead with you. Most likely, they will never be near you. No, 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 no. Uh, This brings us to December 1811, and uh, guys, get ready for the tearjerker here. Maria McGregor dies. No! Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. Hey, can I just say, good for her. Yes, no, it is absolutely in her interest. Get it, girl. But this caused a minor problem, because as you can imagine, imagine this guy is married to your daughter. So you are forced it, it, to deal with him because you love your daughter and she picked this asshole. It's hard, but I will indulge. You're never going to talk to this motherfucker again. So at a moment's notice, he has lost all of his in, his main source of income, the support of his family, and everything else. He is literally back to being like square one. Uh, I don't know what to do. Are you telling me that his shining personality couldn't sustain these relationships? No. Is that what you're telling me? No. I find that hard to believe. He's the man's a, a charisma machine. He's a man whose only real experience was in the military, and yet the way he exited the military made it so it would be awkward at best to try and return to said military. So, <laughs> what do you do in 1811 if you're in this position? God, that's a good question. You go uh, to Venezuela. I, that's what you not do. What I was, not what I was going to say, but... You go to Latin America because, again, if you're a weird uh, historical bibliophile and you know that we're in 1811, the Spanish Wars of Independence are kicking off. Latin America has kind of decided, uh, fuck you. We're kind of done being ruled by you. They're doing a, an American 2 electric boogaloo down south and breaking off that yolk of independence. Now, their main revolutionary, uh, the, the, the predecessor to the more famous revolutionary we will mention in a minute, is Francisco de Miranda. Uh, Francisco okay. was uh, uh, has a long storied backstory that is not worth going into here. But if you want to, the Revolutions podcast was a really good uh, uh, justice to that man. Um, he was a very interesting character, but all we need to know is that he was actually in London at the time. He was kind of in exile from Venezuela, trying to rile up independence while 
exiled from his home country. Um, desperately wanted Venezuela to be free. Uh, and he happened to meet McGregor. So at this point, uh, Gregor sold the small Scottish estate he inherited from his father and sailed for South America in 1812. He made a stopover in Belgrade because he absolutely stopped in Jamaica on his way. He needed mittens. He did, in fact, need some mittens for his kittens. Kitten mittens, if you will. They were invented on that boat on the way over. How did we not make that joke last episode? It was bad enough when we thought of the John Candy Cool Runnings thing. Yeah, no, there are so many. I don't envy you having to edit all of these great jokes back into that episode. I really don't. You think I edit? (laughs) I take a Bob Rossian approach to this podcast. (laughs) There are no bad bits, just happy accidents. Okay, so on the way, he he, heads, he stops in Jamaica. Uh, he had no introductory letters in that place, and he was not going to be received into society, which is a thing you needed. You basically needed a letter of reference to go hang out with people. Um, Francisco de Miranda had a lot of them. He was, like, friends with everybody. Like, he chilled with Catherine the Great. He chilled with Ben Franklin. He chilled with all the founding fathers. Like, he was, like... The- Hold up. Who the fuck didn't chill with Ben Franklin at this rate? Uh, like- no, exactly. Francisco de Miranda, like, you can do... He hung out with, like, Bach... And, and all of these guys, he, he lit, you could do six degrees of separation for anyone in the, like, 200 years around him, and you can get to Francisco de Miranda. So, uh, we, have, we have arrived. It's 1812. We're in South America. I'm there. So, McGregor arrived in the capital of Venezuela, Caracas, uh, about two weeks after that city was destroyed by a massive earthquake. Uh, oh, that! Oh, ooh! Uh, I feel like that was an omen. <laughs> it actually was, and there's a really interesting backstory to that as well. Um, in that the Venezuelan uh, Republicans had just risen up and overthrown the government, and had just kind of taken Caracas, and all of the the staunch Catholic supporters were were preaching that you 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 must not turn your back on Mother Spain. God's vengeance will come down on you. And then a massive, massive earthquake leveled the city. So I love it. I love it. It, it is absolutely one of those like few times like it is. It is absolutely calling your shot from the pulpit and being like, "Holy fuck, I was right." <laughs> I was. I was gonna say, as a very non-spiritual person, if I saw a little more of this like divine comedy happening, hell yeah, I'd be on board. I'd be so on board. So McGregor dropped the the pretending that he had about the the Spanish the Scottish baronetcy he he stopped pretending he was the head of the clan uh, because he thought it might undermine his revolutionary credentials with the new guys he was trying to be friends with so he he could I get the feeling that everyone in Venezuela doesn't know what the fuck Bart means when you add it to the end of your name I'd you'd be surprised cuz most of these guys are basically just Spanish expats at this point um but that being said, he did continue to style himself as Sir Gregor on the basis that he was a knight of the Portuguese Order of Christ. And honestly, who's going to fact check you? Uh-huh. Who's going to fact check you? This is your verbal LinkedIn. Ramp it up all you want. It is. Nobody's coming at you for libel. Young, dumb, and full of... Speaking of, he moved on to offering his <laughs> services directly to Miranda in Caracas, because at this point Miranda had finally come over. The first Republic of Venezuela was starting to get off the off the, the ground, and Miranda came back for his glorious return, and then the earthquake leveled it and ruined everything. Um, and he pitched himself as, hey, you might need yourself a military man. A man that maybe rode with the diehards. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And they're like, yes, I know what this means. Yeah. That sounds very important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, he, and he absolutely did. Again, this is the equivalent of you. If you say SEAL Team Six to someone in London right now, they'll they may not know why they should be impressed, but they'll know they should be. Uh, and this is very much the same thing. Miranda absolutely immediately gave him command of a battalion at rank of colonel. God, damn! Based on a verbal recommendation, a verbal reference provided by who was that again? Oh, himself. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. I'm my own reference, and I got a baller job from it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Again, the Gregor McGregor story. Uh, (laughs) At this point, uh, McGregor and and his cavalry unit actually routed a royalist force in Mackay between uh, Valencia and Caracas, and and in subsequent engagements, he was mildly successful. Um, they they were pleased with what he was doing. He he gave them this flair of the Scottish man in, in officer in to help the, the rebel cause. He he really ingratiated himself to the to the group, and as a result, he ended up marrying Doña Josefa. Uh, she had a much longer uh, uh, Spanish name, but we're not going to get into it. I'm uh, sure. 
I'm sure she, she is did. the daughter of a prominent Caracas family, which means she was also cousins of another guy that you might recognize in this story, uh, Simone Bolivar. Uh, mildly famous, mildly famous guy. Uh, he just married into the equivalent of George Washington's family. By the end of this month, uh, Magri- uh, the month he got married, he uh, he'd been promoted to brigadier general. Uh, which is just moving up the ranks. You're starting to hit Halo ranks that I recognize. We really, so I am, I am intrigued. <laughs> so the problem was, though, he got promoted right in July, and then the Royalists, if again, if you know anything about the Venezuelan Revolution, the Royalists took Puerto Cabello from Bolivar, the Republic collapsed, and everything kind of went to shit. Uh, McGregor and his wife got uh, evacuated to the Dutch island of Curaçao, um, and Bolivar joined them there in about a year after he got out of uh, his various happenings. The other thing about Bolivar is uh, he wasn't like Washington in that they did it all in one shot and it was okay. Uh, he he kind of tried to do a revolution and got exiled four different times before he actually got one to stick. Uh, he He's an interesting character unto himself. Not a lot of beginner's luck, it sounds like. No, no, no. And Simone started as a bougie freaking rich guy and then turned into an actual, like, revolutionary. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, but Miranda, who uh, got imprisoned in Spain and thrown in Spain never to, to breathe free air again, no longer around to help boost up McGregor, uh, Bolivar emerged as the new leader of the Venezuelan independence movement. And he said that it was just a matter of time before we were going to get off this damn island and we were going to go kick some ass in Venezuela. Now... That that was awful well and good, but McGregor kind of gets bored easily if he doesn't have something to do for like 20 minutes. So he decided he wasn't going to wait for Bolivar to get off the island, and he offered his services to Antonio Nariño, who was already in Venezuela's western neighbor, New Granada. Uh, New Granada is much more in like the what we would normally think of, I think, as Colombia uh, area, South America. So so basically, he's like, all right, Venezuela, I know you want to be free, but uh, there's some fighting to do over here, and I don't want to queue in this lobby. I'm jumping into this game. Let's go. Um, <laughs> so he got Yosefa to lodgings in Jamaica, because, again, just everything goes to Jamaica. It is the epicenter. And then he uh, traveled with Nariño to the Eastern Andes, up in the mountains. And Miranda, Miranda being able to name drop Miranda got uh, McGregor a whole new commission in the service of the new Granadan army. He had command over 1,200 men in the Socorro districts. That's that's too many dudes for this man. Yeah, 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 yeah. One, honestly, one dude, one child is too many people for this man to be in charge of. Yeah. So there are uh, there are two quotes that come out of this time period. Uh, one from one of his bougie friends who said that uh, his conduct in Socorro was upstanding and that by introducing the European system of tactics, he considerably improved the discipline of the troops. Now... Contrast that with a guy he was commanding whose quote was, I am sick and tired of this bluffer or Quixote or devil knows what. This man can hardly serve us in New Granada without heaping 10,000 embarrassments upon us. So I'll, I'll let you find the truth is in the middle of that, of that, uh, those two. There's no European ideal this dude brought over other than pay to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Very much so. And, a, and, a, and an incredible sense of white entitlement. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, very white. Uber white. Uh, <laughs> so while McGregor is, and again, McGregor in, in New Granada is doing nothing. It's not like back in Marina where he was like routing forth. Like he was just chilling essentially for lack of, like he was just guarding a town that no one was trying to take. Um, but while he's hanging out in New Granada, uh, Simone next door uh, gets a force of Venezuelan exiles and fucking lands in Cartagena and captures Caracas. Because why the fuck wouldn't you? Because you're fucking Simone Bolivar. You do that shit. Um, now the royal forces rallied and then crushed Bolivar again and then re-exiled him. But that's not the point. The man is a god and I'm going to keep referring to him anytime he comes up. <laughs> not the point, of course. Not the point. Um, now at this point, the Spanish forces blockaded McGregor in. He was a little bit uh, you know, blocked in. And then he had to run. We skip to what is then uh, known as the Amelia Island Affair. Because this man's fucking life is broken up into nice thematic chunks. As any good cock and bull is. It As is. any good cock and bull is. Now, now we, we're, we're getting a little too, uh, too South American for his taste, so he wanted to move a little bit north. And what happens when you hit a little bit north of South America? You hit Florida! That's right, you hit Florida, ladies and gentlemen. McGregor was tasked with capturing ports in East or West Florida, which were then Spanish colonies, because he thought they would be a, a good springboard for a revolution. It was, it, was, it was surrounding 
the South American colonies with with pro-revolutionary forces. If you take Florida, then you, you, you could push on them from the north and the south. It was a, it was a good idea. It made sense. It wasn't his idea, obviously, but but it was an idea. So at this point, he, he rides into, into Florida. He raised an army of several hundred men in the mid-Atlantic states. He basically went up to South Carolina, Savannah, and raised $160,000 by selling uh, scripts or plots of land to investors, promising them fertile acres in Florida and money back with interest once he, D- took, the, once he took the colony. D- Doug, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, laying the groundwork, you could say, uh, is a good way to put it. Setting the bait. <laughs> Uh-huh. So he was determined to attack Amelia Island, which was an anarchic community of pirates and other criminals that made up 40% of East Florida's population. So he's going to attack a pirate kingdom. That's currently Florida's population. Now, he expected little or no resistance from the, the Spanish garrison there, so he leaves Charleston in a ship with fewer than 80 men, mostly U.S. citizens. Because if there's one thing the U.S. are good for, it's some some good old pirate rabble-rousing. Of course, your heart, yo-ho. He led the landing party personally, uh, and he led with the words, I shall sleep either in hell or Amelia tonight. Uh, the, the Spanish colonel uh, at Fort San Carlos had 51 men and several cannons, and he assumed that because this guy was marching in so fucking confidently that this was obviously just the beginning of a much larger army and surrendered the fort to McGregor without either side firing a shot. Stop. Nope. What? I won't do that. Nope. This this man he, literally saw 29 dudes heading for him, assumed, oh, fuck, the entire, the entire army's coming for us. I surrender. Please don't shoot at me. This is literally a play out of Sun Tzu's book. Like, wh- what the fuck? Uh, what, is there a part in Sun Tzu where it says, just be full of bullshit and hope they surrender? I don't, I don't remember Dude, that, that, that. This is the definition of big dick energy. It is absolutely the biggest of dick energy. This is the biggest dick energy I've ever heard of. So a few of Amelia Island's residents came out to support McGregor, uh, but at the same time, there wasn't really any resistance. There was a little resistance, but no one really gave a shit. Most just simply were like, if they didn't like it, they're like, ah, fuck it. We'll go inland or we'll go to Georgia. Fuck it. Um, And so at this point, McGregor raises his his own little flag, which is a green cross on a white field. It's it's just a a green cross on a white flag. Uh, Boring. Called the Green Cross of Florida. And he issued Boring, a pro- not unlike Gregor. Yeah, oh, oh yeah. And he issued a proclamation on the 30th of June urging the island's inhabitants to return and support him in his new endeavor. Uh, this was largely come ignored back. because he was asking a bunch of fucking pirates to come back and play nice. Now, after he announced a Republic of the Floridas under a government that was headed by himself, he set up a series of taxes uh, on the local pirates' booty. Can you can you guess how that went? Oh, well, he's made an enemy of a large gang of pirates now. Well, not so much an enemy so much as uh, they all cocked their heads to the side and said, fucking what? No, you can't tax us. Fuck off. And just laughed at him because he had absolutely no authority. He was able to muster at most 200 men. He's barely had authority of most of his life. I mean, it makes sense. It's par for the course. So 18 men were sent to reconnoiter from Amelia to St. Augustine, uh, and they were all either killed, wounded, or captured by the Spanish. Um, McGregor's troops were, again, in a hearkening back to last episode, paid in Amelia dollars that he had printed and then just not paid at all. 18, September of 1817, he uh, absolutely fucks off and runs away to the Bahamas. That tracks. Because the pirates were getting a little restless, and uh, he just turned it over to a Pennsylvania congressman and said, this is yours now, bye, and and dried off with his wife to uh, to the Bahamas. He won by just marching with confidence, and the minute he had to, uh, you know, sort of back that confidence up uh, was the minute he left. It's kind of interesting. A little bit. What was more interesting is that he, when he fucked off to the Bahamas, he uh, he fucked off to have commemorative medallions minted to uh, to, to commemorate his grand uh, his grand march. Uh, they came it, with they came with two slogans. Do you want to know what they are? Yeah. Yeah, 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 you do. You do. Because because if there's anything that we as Americans love, it's commemorative stuff. Dale Earnhardt oh, plays. Yeah, especially at five in the morning, the only thing that appeals to me more on infomercials is commemorative coins. Princess Princess Diana, commemorative koozies, all of that kind of stuff. It's uh, been 30 years, but I do want those Diana koozies it's now. It's important. Mm. The first was inscribed with the Latin Amelia Veni Vidi Vici, which if you know your you know, Latin is Amelia. Get I came, I saw, I conquered. Get fucked. 
Oh my god, what is Italian for I walked up to it and they gave it to me? He made absolutely no attempt to repay the 160000 that he raised in order to uh, to start that fucked up expedition. Well, well, color me surprised. He's been such a reputable gentleman thus far. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the next, uh, next stop for our, our fun friend is uh, during the Third Venezuelan Republic, which is where he heads to Portobello. Uh, and he did this with a thousand dollars in borrowed British capital so that he could engage British troops. He was basically sent to be a recruiter for British troops in, into Venezuela. Guys, you've just got to join. All you got to do is give a thousand pounds and you'll be a captain. Come yeah. on. It's fun. Do it. Do it. He, he got this money from a London financier and then immediately squandered it in about two weeks. Bought a lot of Pokemon cards. I get it. So yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty hard. Um, so he then managed to do his uh, raising of his you know troops through commissions and selling those at a, a slightly cheaper rate than what the British Army offered, um, and assembled a a small cadre of men, fifty officers and five hundred troops, many of them Irish, to follow him to Portobello. Now the problem with this is that one he couldn't pay. He couldn't pay any of them. Mm-hmm. And two, while he took Portobello rather easily, as he seems to do with everything, where he just shows up and everyone gives him stuff, uh, pretty quickly the Spanish realized, this guy's an idiot and all his people are trying to revolt on him. We should probably try and kick him out. At which point they, they spent two minutes attempting to like feign that they were going to go after him, and McGregor literally pointed when the cannon fire went off threw his bed and blankets out the window onto the beach, jumped onto them, and then paddled out to his ship on a log. For potentially the first time on the Cock and Bull, you have left me speechless. Yep, yep, yep. He uh, he, he then passed out and would have drowned had one of his crew not picked him up uh, on the main boat, and then they rowed away to safety. Fuck that guy, first of all. Let him drown, please, God. He, he left his uh, second-in-command there uh, with 200 extra men, uh, all of which were slaughtered when the Spanish came in and took the, uh, took the, took the oh, fort. Oh, you're telling me they didn't also throw their bed and blankets out the window and sailed away on a log? They did not. So, uh, so Those fucking morons, didn't they take a page from his playbook? So death count directly attributable to, uh, to Mr. McGregor at this point is in the roughly 250 range. So here's the thing. We're about 40 minutes into this podcast, and I have a confession. All of the things I've told you to this point are not the thing that make Gregor McGregor a famous asshole of history. I need fresh air. Hold on. (laughs) None of it. Okay, tell me how it gets worse from here. Do you want or do you actually need some fresh air? Because, boy, strap in. It's about to get nasty. Dog, there's no amount of O2 that's going to make this better for me. Well, then strap on in. For what is, what I am going to, what I assume initially dub, as the Bernie Madoff beta program. Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a, this scheme is what made uh, McGregor famous and is still to this day studied by uh, economic historians on its impact it had and uh, and the precedent it set. It's known as Mm -hmm. the Poirier scheme. McGregor kind of disappeared for a while after he got a whole bunch of dudes killed. And, and I wonder why. I know, it's weird. And the next time he pops up is uh, at the court of King George Frederick Augustus of the Mosquito Coast. Which continent are we on? We are in uh, uh, Middle America. We are in, in the South America, Central America. Um, okay. The Mosquito Coast is right. right on the Gulf, in the Gulf of Honduras. Um, it is literally home to the Mosquito people which are descendants of shipwrecked African slaves and the indigenous uh, Incans. That is the most baller lore that I've ever heard in my life. What? (laughs) The mosquito people? The mosquito people, uh, who, again, are descendants of shipwrecked African slaves and the the local um, Incan Incan natives. Hondurans, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They shared the historic British uh, dislike of Spain, and so they kind of acted as a weird buffer. They weren't, the, the British are like, hey, you don't like Spain, we don't like Spain, let's be buddies, and they're like, Eh, whatever, uh, but they made their mo- they 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 then made all of their local chieftains kings. Hence, King George Frederick Augustus in the middle of yeah. fucking middle of Central America. 
<laughs> this was it's just an unlikely place to find a king. It makes more sense now. Yeah, yeah. This is just the British gave them the king title just so that they had a place where they could set up shop. Um, and so they did. They set up settlements. They they, they kind of colonized the area a little bit, and you get the Mosquito Coast. Uh, it's also notorious because every rainy season, it is so inundated with mosquitoes that it is literally unlivable, and the fact that anyone was able to live there for any period of time is a miracle. Um, it is an unlivable hellscape. So, McGregor, why is McGregor in this un, uh, wild hellscape? Well, he became friends with King George Frederick Augustus, because if there's one thing Gregor McGregor is good at, it's being a swarmy, charming fuck. Uh, it, it's being confident, really. It boils down to confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, again, the big dick energy is back, guys, because King Frederick Augustus signed a document, and this is not an alleged, this is a thing, signed a document granting McGregor and his heirs eight million acres of territory in the Mosquito Coast. The BDE is off the charts. That made up an area larger than Wales. He did it in exchange for rum and jewelry. Stop. No, he didn't. Yeah, he did. Does he understand how big an acre is? He does. Now... The, you may this may sound like a oh the the natives sold Manhattan for some beads, until yeah. you realize that while this land was was pleasing to the eye, it was completely unable to be cultivated. It could not sustain livestock. Uh, it was a triangular area that was headed off by three uh, three rivers and and just mm-hmm. unlivable on any side in the heat. And again, back to those mosquitoes. Uh, you it, know what? You make you make a damn good point. You did mention this is no man's land. He and gave, I didn't really consider where he was given all those acres for. Uh-huh. Uh, so again, he now has 8 million acres of complete worthless hellscape. And what yeah. do you do if you have 8 million acres of hellacious Central American territory? And you're a, just a bastard. Open a Dave and Buster's. Close. You create a name for this area called Poyer, uh, completely invent it, and then go back to London calling yourself the Kazik of Poyer, which is a Spanish-American word for chief, which McGregor made into basically prince. He, he went I back don't... and said, I'm the prince of Poyer. I don't know how I ruled it out that he would spin this in his favor. I really don't know how I said there's no way he takes 8 million acres of mosquito world and turns that into some shit he can brag about where he's the only verbal reference for it. Uh-huh. The title and Poirier as a whole were both uh, both his own inventions. And it's hilarious that you just assume he's going to stop at using it for bragging rights. Oh, it's hilarious. Uh, so despite all the negative shit that this man has done and is known uh-huh. to have done, incomprehensible he, most of amounts. London high society kind of doesn't know who he is. Sure. Except for what he tells them. Yeah. So they're largely, they all they remember of him, really, is that he was loosely associated with the diehards. Uh, he left the uh-huh. military early and then he mm-hmm. went to South America. Yeah. Now, the other thing to know about South America at this time is that the concept that a random country that you didn't know existed suddenly existed wasn't really out of the question. Uh, South of America went from being one big Spanish colony to 13 or 14 independent nations almost overnight. Yeah. So the concept that, that this random Scotsman walks back home and is suddenly the leader of a country called Poyer that you've never heard of. Really wasn't that crazy. Makes complete sense. Now, it also helped that his wife, Josefa, was Latin American. So she she was the princess of Poyer and gave it the exotic appeal that it needed to the London high society. By which you mean having a woman with brown skin. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very much that, very much that. Uh, the McGregors were, were all of a sudden, they were socialites. Uh, they were, they were included at official receptions in Guildhall from the Lord Mayor of London. And, uh, McGregor's story for why he'd come back to London was that he was there to attend King George IV's coronation on behalf of Poyer. Uh, now it would be one thing if he was just attending to like say hi for Poyer, but what he really needed was he, guys, guys, shh, come here. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Hey, don't, don't tell anyone. Don't tell Don't tell Joe. No one likes Joe. Um, guys, we need some settlers for Poirier. 
it's super lit in Poirier. I mean, it is just it is just the tits. Um, I need you to give me a lot of money and uh, and and come settle Poirier. It's gonna be great. Oh my god, all I've got is millions. Is that enough? I, you know. It might not be, but if you get all of your millions together with your friends' millions, we might just be able to that, make this dream happen, guys. Ab- absolutely. Oh, my God. I've got to go tell Bill. Yes. Uh, he claimed that he inherited a democratic government there with a civil service and an active military. Again, of co- barren, <laughs> unlivable hellscape filled with death mosquitoes. Full of mosquitoes that are the size of men, I assume. Uh-huh. And again, what happens to... Uh, to, uh, to, to weak ass constituted Englishmen who go over to uh, the new world in a mosquito filled hellscape <laughs> I've li- this is okay you know what you're at you're in the cock and bull fuck you if you don't want to hear the Civ references <laughs> they're coming you've sent your settler before your archer and god damn it they're going to get eaten alive it's it's not gonna be good it's certainly not uh, so to anyone who was interested in this super awesome new uh, luxury colony that existed overnight that everyone could get in on for cheap um, McGregor showed them a printed proclamation from the Poyers his people um, that announced he had this awesome land grant um, and he just needed people with religious and moral instruction to guide the poorer people. Thank God he was able to rope religion into this. Oh, for sure, for sure, for I sure. I thought for a minute he couldn't go the full mile of douchebaggery, but he fucking did it. And uh, he presented them with a letter that he got sent that said, I bid you farewell, my Kazik. I trust in the kindness of the almighty providence that I shall again be enabled to have you return amongst us. And it'll be my our pleasing duty to hail you and your affectionate friends forever yours, Kazik and father. There, There is no evidence that anyone in the Mosquito Coast ever said any such thing. Potentially the uh, uh, 20th time you could have said there is no such evidence in regards to this whole story. Not to be suited at just a government and a military that didn't exist. He began what is called, and again, this is considered the most brazen con job in all of history. McGregor devised a tricameral parliament convoluted constitutional agreements, commercial and banking mechanisms, designed distinct uniforms for each regiment of the Poison Army. He had imaginary country, honors, systems, titles, a coat of arms, doubly supported by the Poyer and unicorns, and the same green cross flag that he invented in Florida. It it would have been easier to take over an actual country than to put this amount of fucking... I've put this much preparation into D&D campaigns. This man's outdone me by threefold. What the fuck? By the end of 1821, uh, Major William Johnson had not only accepted McGregor's fantasy tales, but he'd become yeah. an active ally in recruiting more people to Poirier. A Without place that, again... Does not exist. No, without having actually seen it. <laughs> because he was promised to be married off to a member of the Poiesian royal family. Which, as far as we know, is a mosquito-human hybrid. Very, very possible. Again, to be clear, the mosquito people are an actual people. African shipwreck slaves, native Incans. We don't need to shit on them. Let's keep the shitting on McGregor. I have, respe- I have respect for that legitimate culture that existed. What... Gregor McGregor has come up with. I believe he's pitching to people as a bizarre mosquito-human hybrid. It's at this point that uh, Gregor presents himself to King George the Fourth and begins setting up Poison consulates throughout London, Edinburgh, I refused and Glasgow. Re- refuse to believe that there were parliaments that gave credence to this absolute, like, magnum opus of bullshittery. He then started at these consulates handing out handwritten but later printed land grants and impressive-looking land ownership certificates. Yeah. Uh, The consensus... Now, there's, there's not a lot of consensus on Gregor McGregor, but the consensus is that McGregor is probably one of the luckiest sons of bitches to ever live because there literally could not have been a better set of circumstances than 1820s Britain to try and sell this freaking scheme. 
there was a giant boom in the British economy after Waterloo because the Napoleonic Wars had ended. Uh, interest rates were dropping, so bonds were a super, super high, uh, high. You know, people wanted them a lot. There were there were three percent returns on the stock exchange. There were all sorts of all sorts of really great uh, ways to invest. And the concept of investing in the new world, the the new new world, because now we got South America on. Now that America's fucked off, new Grand Colombia, all of this kind of stuff. Um, it, it was it was creating this bubble of weird voyeur tourism colonialization that that mcgregor tapped better than anyone ever could have so against my better judgment uh-huh. i want you to go on okay uh mcgregor mounted what would be a, an aggressive sales campaign for poirier he gave interviews in national newspaper he engaged publicists to write advertisements and leaflets he composed poirier related ballads and sung on the streets of london edinburgh and glasgow there's a singing campaign going on? There are songs. Oh, there are songs. In mid-1822... Please tell me the songs of the mosquito people. In mid-1822, in London, Edinburgh, a 355-page guidebook intended for the use of settlers called Sketch of the Mosquito Shore, including the territories of Poirier, written by Captain Thomas Strangeways, an invented human being, uh, appeared. And started being circulated. The original material ranged from misleading to outright fabrications. McGregor's publicist described Poirier's climate as remarkably healthy, agreeable and admirable with the constitution of Europeans. It was supposedly a spa destination for sick colonists from the Caribbean. There, there, there is nothing more he can do. Please, God, there's nothing more. There's so much more. No, there's so there's much nothing the more. The soil was so fertile that a farmer could have three maize harvests a year or go crash no. crops such as sugar, tobacco, without hardship. No, that's not true. The end forecast from the sketch was that land with land profits would be in the hundreds of millions of pounds. More... More land's just popping up. I don't even know what to do with it. It's just coming out of the water. Fish and God's game. Just putting more land here. Fish and game were so plentiful that man could fish for a single day and bring back enough to feed his family for a week. You wouldn't believe it. Dr. Pepper comes out of the fucking water fountain. It's crazy. The natives were not just cooperative, but intensely pro-British. There are slaves you don't even have to whip here. The capital of St. Joseph a place that doesn't exist, is a flourishing yeah. seaside town with wide paved boulevards, colonnade buildings and mansions inhabited by 20,000 people. Jimmy Buffett plays every fucking night, every night. St. <laughs> Joseph has a theater, an opera house, a domed cathedral, the Bank of Poyer, the Poison House of Parliament, the Royal Palace. We do a marathon of Fast and the Furious all of them, every one of the movies, 24-7. It's perfect here, guys. Come on. Not to be left out, reference was made to a projected Hebrew colony. We're inclusive over here. That's the other thing is you don't you don't get this. Like, you won't catch me saying this to everybody, but we're pretty inclusive over there, too. We got some Jews, all right? We got Jews over here. The sketch claimed that the rivers of Poyer claimed pure, intact globules of pure gold. Uh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> This was almost all fiction, but McGregor's... Wait, really? (laughs) Hold on. Have you been lying to me? No! No! There's not globules of pure gold? Nathan, I thought this was a non-fiction podcast. But McGregor correctly calculated that official-looking documents and printed word would convince many people that he was correct. And oh, was he right. The meticulous leather-bound sketch of Poirier and the cost of having it printed did much to dispel any doubts. He paid money to have this made. He couldn't be lying. I give up. Poison land certificates were sold at two shillings and three pence per acre. Uh, the roughly the equivalent to a working man's day wage at the time. They were perceived as many as an attractive investment opportunity, and there was enough demand for certificates that McGregor was able to raise the price to two shillings sixpence per acre in July 1822, and then gradually to four shillings per acre without any diminishment in sales. I'm so unfathomably angry. <laughs> By the beginning of 1823, McGregor had 
500 people who had bought Poyesian land. The buyers included many who invested their entire life savings. It, I I wish I wish the bar could be lowered at this rate, but <laughs> to uh, to quote a a 21st century financial analyst, uh, Gregor McGregor is the founding father of securities fraud. God damn, what a burn. <laughs> Alongside selling land certificates to individual working people, uh, which was shitty unto itself, McGregor then spent several months organizing the issue of poison government loans on the London Stock Exchange. So again... Did he invent the Ponzi scheme and multi-level marketing uh, while he was at it? Like... London Bank Paring Shaw Barber & Co. underwrote a £200,000 loan secured no, on all the no, revenues of the no, government of Poirier. You said, you said an amount of money that is unreasonably high for right now, and you're talking about 200 years ago. So, they began please selling exit stage right. <laughs> they began selling bonds for the Poison government. In denominations of 100, 200, and 500 pounds. Offered at markdown prices of only 80% total value. Markdown? (laughs) The certificates could be acquired for 15% with the rest due in installments over January and February 1823. What What a steal! If the Poesian issue was successfully emulated the Colombian, Peruvian, and Chilean counterparts, McGregor was estimated to have amassed a fortune of millions of dollars in then money he was estimated to have made roughly hundreds of millions of dollars in in current day equitable money so what do you need when you've got this made up land you need settlers and mcgregor deliberately targeted fellow scots assuming that scotsmen were more likely to trust another scotsman and they all got on a boat and roughly eh, 500 of them sailed to poyer a place that does not exist. Well, hang on. It 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 do exist, although it's significantly more mosquitoes and uh, uh, less everything he advertised. He, they sailed on the Honduras Packet. I don't know why you'd name a boat the Honduras Packet, but you did. Uh, the initial group of settlers. I thought that was a river. <laughs> they reached the head of the Black River in 1820, November 1822. That's definitely a river. And were bemused to find a country that was rather different than the sketch's descriptions. Is bemused the word you would pick? It's the word they picked. Is it the word that really encompasses the situation? There was no sign of St. Joseph, the capital with the Fast and the Furious marathons, and so the immigrants set up camp on the shore like uh, fucking lost and just assumed that the Poyesian authorities would soon be there to it's, contact them. It's, it's going to come to us, guys. Hang on. Let's just wait a night. Oh, no, no, no. Don't worry. They sent numerous search parties inland. One of them was guided by natives who recognized the name St. Joseph. They did find some long-forgotten foundations and rubble, and Hall, the man who was uh, piloting the ship, quickly came to his conclusion that he got fucked. Guys, I listen, this is weird. I know this is going to sound weird. I feel like I feel like the whole city done got lifted and put somewhere else. Now, now here's the thing. He wouldn't say that to everybody because he did reason that announcing any of these concerns prematurely would demoralize the party and cause chaos. Is he just going to fucking leave? A few weeks after their arrival, the captain of the Honduras packet abruptly and unilaterally sailed away. You know what's not going to hurt morale is be- is being abandoned in Mosquito Land. The immigrants found themselves alone apart from natives and two American hermits who lived on the island. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this is so fucking horrible. The settlers comforted themselves with vague assurances that the Poesian government would find them if they just stayed where they are. Meanwhile- God damn it, you said this wouldn't break me. I am broken. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hall set out for Capagresas Adios, hoping to make uh, contact with the Mosquito King or find another ship. Uh, most of the f- immigrants found it impossible to believe that uh, the Kazik had deliberately misled them and posited that blame must lie elsewhere or there was a terrible misunderstanding. There's no way the blame lies on Gregor McGregor. <laughs> there is simply no universe where that happens. The second set of colonists disembarked for Poirier in March 1823. Damn it. You know what? You, everyone can complain about how all these damn millennials are always on their phones, but like, there's some fucking perks to the information era, and one of those perks 
is that we don't have generations of settlers being stranded in Mosquito Land. That's all I'm saying. That's it. Hall returned from his expedition to try and find the king in April uh, with disheartening news that he found no ship that could help them. And far from considering any responsibility, he found King George Frederick Augustus, who had not even been aware that they were present, had no idea who McGregor was, and said that he was they were all <laughs> trespassing on his land and needed to get the fuck out of there. Oh, did he pay for cab fare home? Oh, no, 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 no. That would be too easy. Now, these immigrants were prepared. They brought ample provisions, medicine, and two doctors. So they were not in a totally helpless situation. Were they prepared? Now, the problem is, is none of them, apart from Hall, had any military experience. There were no government officials, civil servants, or anything like that, because they all assumed it was there. Uh, and McGregor had literally just tried to dupe as many working men as he could into thinking they could build a new life in Poirier. Uh, so roughly, at, at, at this point, the schooner, the Mexican Eagle, from British Honduras and was carrying the chief magistrate of Belize and the Mosquito King, arrived and discovered the settlers in May 1823. How, what, can I get a time frame on how many, how many Earth days it's been since? Well, since they the landed, they did, they did, they landed in November of 1822, and it's now May of 1823. So like seven months, eight months. In another way to measure time, seven men and three children are dead and many more are sick. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite way to measure time in this century. Bennett, the head of Belize, the, the chief magistrate of Belize, as well as the king of uh, uh, the Mexican, uh, the Mosquito people, uh, again, reinforced that they had never heard of this cazique, had never heard of Poirier, there had never been a settlement here, and that these people needed to leave or they were going to die. The you know, it's, God, you, get, you gotta give them an eviction notice, come on. The majority preferred to wait for Hall to come back with word from McGregor about what was actually going on. The majority were gonna fucking die. So finally, they uh, basically almost by force convinced the immigrants, look, you're getting on this boat, we're gonna make three trips back and forth to fit you all on, but we're taking you back to British Honduras, um, because goddammit. Uh, now the weather was actually worse, if you can believe it, in British Honduras, and so disease spread rapidly among the settlers, and almost all of them died. Sh sure, sure. That's no. You know what? I would have been disappointed if it ended any happier. By the time warning reached London, McGregor had five more ships filled on their way to Poirier. How many goddamn people were going to this hellhole? Uh, well, uh, 550 are confirmed to have uh, have left and fewer than 50 ever returned. Oh, my soul. After oh, word got out that he was a bastard man, McGregor fucked off. Where, where are you going? Paris. He's going to Paris. The place where all bastard men are welcome after their fourth or fifth run with the authorities. Six survivors who had lost children over the ordeal assured uh -huh. that they did not blame McGregor but blamed but, Hall, the captain, and other members of the immigrant party for not being committed to to, to trekking inland that, to Poirier. That none of that is their fault. The fact that the city doesn't exist is not their fault. McGregor, the country, the millions of acres, that's not their fault. This is like when the fucking King family believes James Earl Ray saying that he didn't kill Martin Luther King. This is murdering me to my bones. McGregor asserted that he was actually the one that was defrauded and embezzled by some of his uh, his compatriots. Um, and, and he attempted to console the Poirier survivors uh, and, and let them know that there would absolutely be libel uh, writs handed against them if any of them complained uh, against McGregor. McGregor then proceeds to pull the exact same scheme in Paris that he pulled in London uh, to a slightly smaller scale. Uh, that lasted until about 1825. He only made $300,000 $300, loan off of this one and only sent about 50 to 75 people on this hellscape trip to Poirier. Uh, Nathan, please. In Nathan, you're hurting me. In 1826, McGregor was arrested on fraud charges. Uh, oh, what? He was taken to LaForce Prison, uh, and Why? he and his Confederates were charged... Uh, with intrigues with the Spanish that were calculated to undermine independence, uh, the three men remained in prison without trial while the French attempted to extradite them. From uh, some of them were in the had escaped to the Netherlands, and and then McGregor uh, was. They were all finally brought together. They were brought to trial on April sixth, 
Um, some of the two of them were tried in absentia. The Crown's prosecution was uh, was pretty airtight. I mean, they had key documents uh, that had shown that what he had done. He had they had eyewitnesses that said that it didn't exist. Um, mm -hmm, and the prosecutor mm -hmm. alleged a mass conspiracy between McGregor and all these other people uh, on no the collusion. stock exchange yeah, yeah. to to personally pull off this fraud and and make a land land grab essentially. Um, McGregor's lawyer, McGregor's lawyer was a Frenchman named Barlow, and he asserted that nothing untoward had occurred, and the jury absolutely agreed and he was fully acquitted. His argument was, "Hey, nothing bad really happened," and the jury was like. Come to fucking think of it, <laughs> nothing really, nothing bad really did happen. Hey, hey, let him go. Yeah, no, um, absolutely that. Hey, I quit. I quit this podcast. McGregor then went back to London because it was three years You're later, and he assumed everyone had forgotten. Yeah, uh huh. He tried to yeah. do the exact same scheme again. No one fell for it really this time. No one really fell for it this time. It didn't work. He didn't kill five hundred more people. No, no. Weird. Uh, what did end up happening was uh, what irony of grand ironies. McGregor actually was getting undercut by other people selling land in Poirier, the get, land again that does not exist. Get, get the fuck out. He was getting undersold on his own knockoff of a knockoff. Other people were pulling his grift harder than himself. Five years later, King Robert Charles Frederick, who succeeded Just, King George Frederick Augustus, as we remember, there's more, began there's issuing more. land grants in Poirier mm -hmm. to lumber companies in London, mm -hmm. directly competing with McGregor. Please stop. Oh, God. There's no oh, just God. resolution to this. In 1837, McGregor attempted to sell some secondhand land certificates, and this marked the last record of any any semblance of Poirier. That's it. In 1838, That's McGregor went back to Venezuela, uh, said that he was run off uh, unjustly by Bolivar, w requested to be restored to his rank of general and given 25 years back pay. They absolutely did that. And then Gregor McGregor died of natural causes at age 59 in Venezuela. He never suffered a single consequence for his actions. He never repented. And he was uh, possibly one of history's biggest con men ever. You told me this one wouldn't hurt me. <laughs> so, but there were some fun parts, right? Some of it was fun. So, uh, we had, remember when we were in South America? Remember when we were? Nathan, the coins are past us. The good times are over. <laughs> Remember that wife that he got that died? That was fun. You know what? She should count her lucky fucking stars that she got to die young instead of living as the wife of Gregor McGregor. You've been listening to the Cock and Bull podcast, and I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I've been Spencer Faust, the first one to admit that, frankly, we've gone too far. <laughs> We missed a week and I felt bad, so I decided to take you on a supersized version of Torment. <laughs> so, so you wanted to hurt me, yeah. especially real bad. I wanted to, I wanted to destroy something beautiful. I want to thank Driftless Pony Club for being the uh, the caps, the beginning and end to a miserable hour of of content. Yeah. Um, you can catch us every Wednesday, except for the ones. Um, starting next week and all the weeks after because I quit. It's over. <laughs> this is it's done. Nathan broke me. <laughs> this you is have it, my folks. You have my permission to die. <laughs> I'm gonna do a show pretty soon called Blunder Phonics. It's kind of like you this show because you can't in good conscience do this one anymore. I'm um, so I'm gonna full time, full time. I'm doing Blunder Phonics, which means good news. You can catch it once every five years. <laughs> I'm going to devote twice as much time to it, so don't worry. The if weight's there's a cut lunar, in half. If every time there's a full solar eclipse, if you look into the sun directly, you can hear an episode of Blunderphonics. Every year of the rat on the Chinese calendar, <laughs> we will be posting an every episode. Every time the Mayan calendar wraps around and Quetzalcoatl comes to consume <laughs> us all. And while folks are waiting for the yawning void to uh, open up and, and give us another episode of Blunder Phonics, Nathan, can they catch something on a weekly basis from you? Yeah, if you've been sad during, if, if, if this sadness inside of you was like, ooh, I like being sad, tell me more sad things, daddy, um, come on over to Mark's Madness. Uh, one, for whatever reason, we don't ever miss a week, uh, even though I destroyed my iPad halfway through it. Um, probably because David is the most responsible human being I'm ever around, so he kind of forces me to do this on a weekly 
basis. Whereas you me and, me and Spencer literally yeah. lost months of a backlog and I've still yeah. yet to miss a week. We did. We did miss. We did destroy 55 hours of recording and, and, and never missed a week. Uh, uh, again, all thanks to David Painter. Me and Spencer are more of a reinforcing uh, uh, series of, of, oh, man, it feels so good to cancel plans. Um, so so <laughs> we that's... really are enablers to oh, the highest yeah. degree. Oh, yeah. Both of us get off so hard when we cancel plans. Oh, it's so good. It's so good when I don't have to do the bad things. Because imagine, again, if you if you were voluntarily walking into this, would would you want to do it? No. It's painful and it hurts. And, and If this- you're a masochist for history and this, like, gently teased your hate boner, please visit Mark's Madness. Yeah. We're there. We're there. We're hanging out and we're, we're, we're talking about actual useful things and not just angry men from history that make you sad. Nathan? Yeah? Please please never do this to me again. Uh, yeah, yeah, I may be banned for a while from doing these guys, sorry. Farewell! Bye!